This is Coast to Coast. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Corey Johnson. We're here every day bringing the latest news in the world of business and finance. And the most interesting stories in global technology from Silicon Valley and beyond, powered by our more than 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Coast to Coast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 o'clock Eastern only on Bloomberg Radio. President Trump, as you just heard, slapping tariffs on imported solar panels, also washing machines yesterday, uh, but of course making it official today in those uh, comments. In his first major move to really level a global playing field that he says is tilted against American companies. So let's just kind of dig a little bit into the solar industry. What does it mean? Dave Wilson was breaking down uh, the impact or lack thereof on some of the solar names. Brian Eckhouse is renewables reporter at Bloomberg News in our Bloomberg 1130 studio in New York. Brian, whenever we do a solar story, I think about growing up. I live near a golf course and there were homes that were built with solar panels and nobody bought them. And ultimately the developer had to take them off and then they were finally sold. Um, the market is very different today. Very different. How is it? How would you describe it? Solar is much cheaper. Um, if you were to compare solar versus gas-fired power plants versus coal-fired power plants versus wind, it's really competitive, particularly in the Southwest. And if you live in California, if you live in Nevada, if you live in Arizona, it's a pretty strong, uh, compelling idea if you want to help the environment, if you're looking for cost savings. Not true everywhere, but in a lot of places, it's really cheap. Like, I would do it just because I love that it's, I think, better for the environment, or it is better for the environment. But the cost equation is what really kind of, I think, kept it from growing from such a long time. What has made it more competitive with wind, with traditional fossil fuel uh, types of power and energy? Well, a few things. First off, during the Obama years, there were really heavy subsidies uh, from the federal government, uh, from various states, and they still exist today. They're not as compelling as they were during his tenure, but they're still there, and it helps. It's helped brought, bring down the cost curve. Mm -hmm. And China has produced very, very cheap panels. There are arguments that there, there are things behind it that uh, have angered you know, a lot of U.S. manufacturers. The government, for instance, subsidizing it. Certainly. And you know, it makes it more competitive versus other uh, power sources, but it also is still dependent on subsidies from various places. How, how big is the Chinese solar industry? It's, it's pretty big. I mean, and if you look at global market share, do they have half of it? Do they have three quarters of it? I think last year they produced a little more than half. Wow. And the U.S.? Uh, the U.S., well, in terms of installations, China had more than half the installations uh, uh, globally. U.S. was second. But if you look at, like, just simply— Installations are meaning actually putting panels somewhere. Yeah, on, on your roof, right. in the desert, wherever. Um, in terms of making the panels and making the devices that get installed. I mean, it's Asia, first and foremost— uh, if you look at a list of like all the prominent manufacturers, it's all Asian companies first. And then you'll see, you know, first solar in the U.S. and sun power, but they're really low on the list. So when you see what President Trump has done by um, slapping tariffs on imported solar panels, what, what will be the impact uh, on, first of all, the manufacturers here in the United States yep. and the trend lines when it comes to installations here in the United States? So. The, the big number is 30% tariffs, but that's only near one. It declines from there. It's only four years. And the first two and a half gigawatts that are imported uh, are exempt. So it seems like a really big headline number. Right. If you look a little further, it's not as big a dent. 
which is a big reason why a lot of the solar companies in the U.S. today have done pretty well, as, as Dave was saying earlier, mm-hmm. um, because the market priced in uh, heavier tariffs than they actually were. So there's punch to these tariffs, but not as heavy. So to answer your question about like you know cost and uh, it it'll hurt, but it's going to be more of like a bee sting than a punch. A um, more punch. How much of U.S. solar-made components get sold globally? Do we sell a lot? Do U.S. manufacturers sell a lot? Some outside the United States. We do more in, like, in terms of polysilicon, mm-hmm. um, but a big part of this whole equation is that after the U.S. imposed duties on imported goods from China and Taiwan um, under Obama, China responded by putting tariffs on U.S. polysilicon. So that's part of this huge equation where it's like now we have like dueling tariffs. That's a really, I think, smart thing to point out because it's no longer like is it vertical manufacturing that we have everything we need to make something, right? I mean, we see that with the auto world, right? When you try to look at NAFTA as a trade agreement, there's pieces that come from Mexico and then they're made in the United States and maybe they go back to Mexico. I mean, that's kind of how things happen a lot in terms of global manufacturing. Yeah, totally. Um, the U.S. is good doing a lot of parts of, this, of the line. We're good at putting the panels together in the end, but like most of the manufacturing happens abroad. But like, there are so many jobs tied to solar today and there are other parts of the, uh, the value proposition. Mm-hmm. And it's installation, it's development, it's sourcing um, new homes, it's finance. Uh, there's more than a quarter million solar jobs in this country right now, a f- very, very tiny fraction manufacturing, but it's a growing industry and one of the few uh, industries in the country that we're seeing job growth. That's interesting. You also... Um uh, or our team had put out a story you did, actually, five solar firms that actually stand to gain from Trump's tariff. And you do write about First Solar, uh, Tesla's Gigafactory, Solar World, Sunviva, um, and then Chinese manufacturers. Well, because, again, like the, the, uh, these tariffs are not what they could have been. You know, they have bite, but it's not as bad as they feared. The other thing I, I guess I want to point out to kind of look at this from all different way, well, you know, ways is that we do see, whether it's China or another country, sometimes protecting an industry. And maybe that's a little bit of what President Trump is trying to do to make it a much more competitive growing industry. That's certainly the argument. Um, and it fits into his whole America First campaign initiative, his focus on pushing back against China and this trade deficit. Um, so a lot of his supporters are really happy with this, this, this decision. But on the flip side, though, the fact that the two companies who brought it forward, they happen to be U.S. manufacturers, but the majority owned or wholly owned by foreign uh, entities. So it's a big question of who really benefits, America or struggling, uh, you know, owners of you know, foreign, foreignly owned companies. So. That's why I say everything's kind of a global marketplace and Indeed. it has increasingly become that way uh, over the last uh, few years and, and certainly over the last decade. Brian Eckhouse, thank you so much. Thank Appreciate you. the insight. Renewables reporter at Bloomberg News. Check out uh, him on Twitter at Brian Reports and go to Bloomberg.com. This is Bloomberg Radio.
Yes, restaurants, hotels, they all have to worry about their guests and making sure they're giving them the best services. Uh, Fourth, by the way, is a company founded uh, by uh, a couple of restaurateurs that had um, founded them and run them and then sold them uh, and then came up with cloud-based solutions for automating and streamlining procurement, inventory, and labor, all those fun things. Let's talk about the company, what it's seeing, too, in the hotel and restaurant space. James England is Senior Vice President of Strategic Partnerships of Fourth, based in London, based in New York, in our Bloomberg 1130 studio. Welcome to Bloomberg Radio. Thank you for having me, Carol. So tell me exactly what you guys do. Okay, so in a nutshell, Fourth, we provide a technology platform um, that helps operators, whether they be restaurants or hotels, to optimize and manage inventory, purchasing, and crucially, the workforce management, the deployment of that staff in a way that's beneficial to their guests. How low-tech are, hus- uh, are hotels still and restaurants? Um, well, surprisingly, um, <laughs> restaurants are actually pretty high-tech on the whole. The forward thinkers, are very they, they use technology right. because they've got such thin margins that they have to use it to join the dots up. And um, so you'd be surprised how, how tech-savvy they can be. Um, and the restaurant space? Yeah, the uh, restaurants are ahead of hotels. Oh, I meant the hotel. Yeah, they, I, I'm forgive me. I meant the hotel space. And the, ho- and the hotels. Um, they ho- feel like it's still kind of bad. Like every time I'm st- sitting on a line waiting for a room, I'm thinking there's got to be a better way. Hotel. <laughs> it's interesting because actually you you then look at the seg- the segment, the market segment. There are some budget hotels, business traveler hotels, that actually have got have deployed kiosks in a meaningful way. Bigger hotels tend to live off the fat of the hotel room sometimes, and some uh, uh, and aren't necessarily optimized in the back office areas. So tell me a little bit about, because you guys have worked with um, brands like Kimpton, Hilton, Applebee's, Subway. Um, Tell me when you hook up with a customer, kind of what is it that you find you're most doing for them? Well, we are, we're help, mostly we are helping them optimize their profitability around cost of goods on the margin on food and beverage. Um, And crucially, um, optimizing their their labor profitability too, um, but it really goes down to this point of deploying staff across a whole week, across every fifteen minutes of every single day in a restaurant. It's difficult. A manager will generally be able to predict what revenues they're going to take next week, but no one's got the time of the day to figure out how and how much business they're going to do in a particular fifteen minute segment, and how the weather's going to affect that. Local events, national. So you events. break it down that much. We break it down that much, but in an easy in a way that's easy for the manager to understand. Are there algorithms involved in, in order, kind of, to maximize? all of this? Yes, there are algorithms. That, <laughs> there always are. Yeah, there are algorithms, self, self-learning algorithms that factor, and they learn, they do the heavy lifting. Right. What's the impact that you find? Because you talk about that it's, it's you know, to either squeeze a little bit more out of a profit margin. So what's the, what's the payoff? The, the, the impact is twofold. So one is one is a, a fiscal payoff, mm-hmm. and the other is an experiential one. You and I both know what it's like to go out to a restaurant on a Friday or Saturday night, and you want to order a second bottle of wine, you want to order another side dish, but you can't. And why? Because the manager is cutting back on staff because they've accidentally overspent in the early part of the week. So that's an, a huge experience one. And, and we, as paying guests, you know, we we spend less, we repeat and refer less, and actually the manager is unwittingly stretching the staff as well so the benefit the upside of that is is huge to flipping all of those items on their head so where do you see it all going because i think we do talk about often uh, automation robotics if you will and how it's uh continues to infiltrate so many different industries um i guess you kind of play into that right because you're automating a bunch of processes uh where does it all go 
Like, is it to the point, because you talk about labor being such yeah. a difficult component of it, um, is it a case that so much gets automated that you can reduce the human workforce? Well, you, you're, giving, you're giving time back to the manager. So you're giving time back to, them, to the operation. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're giving visibility to the managers for them to be able to do, to do the best possible job. Um, but as I say, it's the machine learning that really is doing the heavy lifting. Provide, it's crunching all these different insights back. So if you imagine that not only have you got the cost of goods, the purchasing data, the inventory data, the labour the labor data, but it's, it's taking it to the level where guest sentiment, um, health and safety scores, mystery diner scores, you can actually provide this in one single... Operators are looking for a single dashboard to be able to manage their business, not to look hither and thither. That's a big part of it, too. I think that there's so, often so many different systems right within an organization that if you can somehow put it all into one yeah that's when it really starts to make a difference in terms of either improving profit margins profitability or what have you yeah. just making something more efficient so in, in addition to general operational efficiencies you touch on a point which is consolidation of systems right um, and a lot of this depends on how, how how big or small the company is we speak to big VP, VPs of businesses which have 2,000 sites and their managers might have 22 different logins to these separate siloed systems mm-hmm. that were bought in over time which and is crazy they don't necessarily talk to each other particularly well so everybody's chasing their tail every week trying to make sense of incorrect data interesting what you're doing it sounds like you're pretty busy you guys we are yeah we're, we're pretty busy we, we are pretty busy it's great it's great yes it, and there's, there's a lot to do and it's fun james england he's senior vice president of strategic partnerships at fourth based in london new york in our studio Guest spends a lot of time talking about healthcare over at PA Consulting Group, and he joins us once again. He's in our New York studio, our Bloomberg 1130 studio. By the way, PA Consulting is a global technology and consulting firm uh, working on a lot of different projects around the globe. Nice to have you back with us. Thank you. You know, it's funny, you and I were listening to Bitcoin and the blockchain <laughs> ETF story, um, and I said, Well, healthcare, how much are they talking about something like Bitcoin or blockchain? You said blockchain. Blockchain more than, than Bitcoin at this point. Yeah, it's starting to become a, uh, an interesting avenue for some of the healthcare companies. I don't know. How, how so? In terms it. of tracking drug production or? In terms of uh, really thinking about the future and, yeah. and how it impacts the health system today. As you know, and we've talked about this before, the healthcare system as a whole is ripe for disruption. So technologies like blockchain, I think, are going to be interesting to keep an eye on in the future. Speaking of uh, healthcare, we had a couple of biotech deals yesterday. We are seeing some M&A uh, activity. Um, tell us about what you're seeing. So there is a lot of M&A in the healthcare space. Um, certainly last year within the provider space, uh, mm-hmm. the, the providers are starting. They had 22, I think, um, acquisitions, and that, that's going to continue. I think you're going to see that continue due to the pressures on the revenue and cost side. So it's so, economies of scale. Right. To some that's extent. that's the yeah. that's I think the M and A piece is really around um, more market share. Mm-hmm. Um, thinking about how to spread costs over a larger group of uh, group of patients. Um, so that's why you see that in the provider space within healthcare. Brett, how does the back and forth about kind of what's next for um, the Affordable Care Act and and what you know is kind of either confusing um, to the folks that you talk to in the healthcare industry, or how does it maybe either stop them from maybe taking actions at this point? So I think there's a pause. Um, so, yeah. you know, fundamentally, I think there's a lot of opportunity within the healthcare system, both payers and providers. And so I think you see uh, swings back and forth as it relates to some of the, the um, regulatory reform with the different administrations. 
That being said, I think fundamentally some of the issues that you see within healthcare are agnostic to the specific regulatory issues, right? These are pure economic challenges that these organizations have, either on the revenue side or the cost side. And so the regulatory piece pressures them, but I don't think it's, um, I don't think they pivot 180 degrees each way based on the administration or based on regulation. I always wonder what the answer is because I think, you know, as long as you make, um, you know, healthcare, it's a business, right? It's publicly held businesses where they're, you know, striving for greater and greater share and profits and revenue growth and higher margins, that there's always going to be kind of this battle that we're dealing then on the other side with the rising cost of health care and how do you pay for it? And I don't know how we get around it. Absolutely. I think that is the major issue, right? So you can say, uh, you know, it's, it's about regulatory reform. Um, I might argue that it's really about fundamental um, economics and operating, mm-hmm. right? Can you operate your company effectively? Right. You know, are you going after the right revenue streams? Now, regulatory reform will play a role in that, but I don't think it's the end-all, be-all. What I see happening in the space, actually, is um, when some of these healthcare reforms come or they come up for vote, organizations pause, right, because they're kind of waiting to see. Mm-hmm. But that, again, doesn't affect the underlying issues called um, my cost structure is too high or I'm not at the you're not going after the right markets and things like that. And so you see the M&A activity. You see the bankruptcies continue even though we're in a little bit of a pause as it relates to the regulatory component. Yeah. I, I mean, I just – I feel like it's the one industry – that we all just kind of scratch our head over, over and over and over again. I'm not quite sure what the answer is to make sure that, you know, everyone gets some kind of care, mm-hmm. good care. Absolutely. Um, but that it's not, you know, these escalating costs. Um, so what does 2018 look like when you look at the healthcare space? What, what might be some of the big stories that come out? So um, the first, I think, is really this continued move to away from fee-for-service into accountable care. So that's going to continue. What's accountable care? It's basically being accountable for the outcomes. So it's really, um, if I'm a doctor, it's not going to be a fee for service for everything that I, uh, that I, everything that I perform. Right. I'll be paid based on the outcome of the incident. So if and, I improve the health of an individual. Exactly. Right. So for example, who's going to gauge that? Well, right now the government CMS won't won't reimburse if you're readmitted for the same condition after 30 days, right, or within 30 days. And so that's a step in the right direction. So I think that's one piece in terms of what to look out for going forward. I think the second piece is continue to look for more bankruptcies, mm-hmm. more M&A. Tradition- in, health- in healthcare providers or what? Both. Okay. I think both payers and providers. Uh, if you think about what they're doing, again, it's it's really about expanding market share um, or spreading costs among a larger, a larger set. So that would be a traditional M&A, hospital buying a hospital. The third thing I think to look for is really around new entrants coming into healthcare. Uh, and seeing what's disruptive. Um, and again, there's lots of talk about Amazon and what's happening. They just hired a doctor three days ago in terms of healthcare. Um, you know, they've got this 1492 incubator. Um, if you think about what they're doing in the grocery business today with Whole yeah. Foods and now walking out of the store without even checking out, so what, those disruptions are going to come to healthcare over time. How do you think the Amazon factor might play out in healthcare? Well, what you, is it? What are the discussions that you guys are having around that? So if you think about what Amazon is actually good at, right, it's really good around disposition of assets, a distribution of assets. What's not working in logistics or within the value chain of healthcare mm-hmm. um, is what Amazon's good at, right? So they're very good at execution, 
right? And so you've seen that in books, you've seen that in news books, you've seen that in products, you're seeing it in the grocery aisle. Healthcare has a lot of nuances, though. It does. It does. Um, and that, I think, goes back to this big challenge of moving from a fee-for-service model to an ACL, right? Right now, the value chain in healthcare is very unique compared to other industries. But again, if you go back to what fundamentally is happening is we have challenges in the operating structure of these companies. And that's what really needs to be focused on. It's not this distraction of, I'm going to buy another hospital or something like that. It's you have to fundamentally fix the operating models of these organizations. And I do like the thinking of accountability and also just this whole idea of, you know, people going in to make sure that they stay healthy, not just going in to see a provider when they're really sick. And it's Ab a different way of thinking. Absolutely. And you see that in in higher premiums, right? People are complaining about the cost of healthcare. It is rising. Yep. And a lot of that burden is coming back on the individual. And that's very intentional because people need to take care of themselves. Right. Again, our best opportunity at this point is keeping people out of the system, staying home and being healthy. Great to get some time with you. Thanks. Brett Schroeder, he is partner at PA Consulting, joining us in our Bloomberg 1130 studio on this Tuesday. This is Bloomberg. You can stay all night and play with my TV. TV is the thing this year, this year. TV is the thing this year. All right, everybody, it is now a $100 billion market cap company, thanks to a more than 9% rally in its share price today, following a quarter that impressed investors. Let's get the latest on the world's largest online TV network. Shira Ovaday, technology columnist at Bloomberg Gadfly, our fast commentary section at Bloomberg here in our 1130 studio, along with Lucas Shaw, entertainment reporter at Bloomberg News, based in L.A., joining us on the phone in New York today. Shira, let's start with you. Um, this was a good quarter for Netflix. It was a good quarter for Netflix. Uh, Lucas can handle the optimistic portion. I will focus on the bummer portions <laughs> of the quarter, which is, look, this is a company that is growing subscribers extremely quickly. You know, more than 20 million new customers in 2017 alone. Um, it is you know, a fast-growing company despite its size. The bad news is that the company is bleeding cash in order to achieve this growth. That Burning um, through it. Burning through cash. So $2 billion in negative free cash flow in 2017, and that number is expected to to go um, 3 to $4 billion in negative free cash flow this year. So that's an extremely high cost for that growth. All right. So investors are saying, yeah, okay, sure, I hear you, but so what? Uh, Lucas, come on in on it, because investors are looking at the uh, glass more than half full for Netflix today. The, the complaint about Netflix spending too much money and burning through cash has been around for a long time. And the reason that investors don't care is because Netflix keeps delivering on its promise of adding customers at a really healthy rate. And as long as that keeps happening, investors see the stock continuing to go up, the revenue is going up. I mean, Netflix has doubled sales over the past three years and is forecast to double sales again over the next three years. And that's because whatever programming formula they have is working not just in the U.S., but in Europe and Latin America. And yesterday, for the first time, you heard executives give some positive commentary on Asia, where they definitely still have a long ways to go, uh, but they're hoping that later this year when they roll out their first big Indian original, their first big Korean original, they'll start to see some success there. So the cost is a concern, but it only becomes a real concern if the growth slows, and, and that hasn't happened yet. 
Okay, but should we, Shira, maybe be concerned that the growth could slow? There's a lot of competition out there for our eyeballs. Content is getting more and more expensive as there's more and more folks competing for that content. Um, that growth rate, which has been pretty uh, significant, it could take a hit. Yeah, I think Lucas is right that at the moment this, the heavy amount of spending doesn't matter. But as he pointed out, there's some caveats to that. So if the growth rate starts to slow investors may start to rethink the whole formula here. Uh, Netflix has also been borrowing money in an environment where borrowing money has been easy and cheap, mm -hmm. even for Netflix, you know, a, a junk-rated issuer. I don't know what happens if interest rates go up, if the, the debt funding environment becomes um, less hospitable to Netflix or companies of its ilk. We just don't know uh, what Netflix, a company that is reliant on borrowing money, what the trajectory looks like if it can't borrow money anymore. And in terms of the overseas growth, Lucas, how much is there? What's how much is out there for the potential uh, for Netflix to grab? I mean, the potential is is gigantic. You know, they have uh, you know between sixty and seventy million subscribers outside the U.S. at the moment. There are, you know, billions of people who live there, especially uh, in Asia, home to about half or almost half the world's population. The qu but it's not clear how many of those people are going to be willing to pay mm -hmm. a monthly fee for a service. You know, it's one thing to get the high net worth individuals in English-speaking countries. It's another thing to then get, you know, some uh, English speakers in Brazil and countries like that. Getting kind of your average citizen in a smaller country is, is, is a much steeper task. But they believe that, and, and Reed Hastings, the CEO, has said that they can sign up, you know, 400 million people outside the U.S. You're nodding, Shira. Uh, no, I, I think that's right. Lucas's point is great, which is Netflix has this ambition to be a global television network, in their words. And obviously, the population of the world is much larger than the population of Netflix's uh, domestic market here in the U.S. But the question is just, can it do it? Can it sign up, you know, non-English speakers in Indonesia and in you know, Kenya, well, not a good example, but in, in other parts of Africa, you know, the world is a large place, but the question is, is the majority of the world um, hospitable to Netflix? Lucas, what is Netflix? A, Go ahead, please. Sorry, it's a totally different proposition from a, a YouTube, for example. You know, YouTube is free. It's very easy to use on a mobile device. So it has more than a billion users all over the globe because nobody has to pay for it. Now, the advertising money that YouTube can generate in a place like Indonesia or in Ghana is relatively small, but it's easy for it to spread. Netflix needs some people to have disposable income to sign up. So, again, it's an easy, easier proposition in Sao Paulo, in London, in Paris, much more difficult in, in a Southeast Asian country. All right. Interesting stuff and certainly a company that's caught our attention uh, once again. Shira, thank you. Shira Ovaday, she's technology columnist at Bloomberg Gadfly, our fast commentary section of Bloomberg. Check her out at Shira Ovaday on Twitter. Lucas Shaw, our thanks to you as well, entertainment reporter at Bloomberg News. It is time for the drive to the close. Aaron Kennan is back with us, co-founder and CEO at Clear Harbor Asset Management. More than $650 million in assets under management. Aaron, nice to have you here. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you, Carol. What do you, Thanks for having me again. Yeah, what do you make of the new year so far? Well, there's been quite a bit of momentum uh, just in that last news report. I mean, just look at the, the, the equity markets here in the U.S. and around the world. The, the momentum continues across the board. And, Carol, I think at the end of the day, it's driven by the sort of synchronous nature of the economic expansion that we saw over the course of 17 falling through into 2018. And, 
that that that's been you know just absolutely stellar, and we're in this sort of Goldilocks scenario, of course, where inflation remains at bay and earnings growth has been you know moving in the the teens around the world. Uh, that momentum appears to be continuing as we uh, as we move through the first quarter. However, we may also be on the cusp of you know a big change in global monetary policy, and we certainly have already seen the U.S. Uh, Fed you know change course quietly, not aggressively, <laughs> but nonetheless it's right. a different different tone. We'll have to see what happens with the ECB, um, but it's a different environment potentially that we're going to see throughout the year. How might that impact the momentum? Well, that's that's a great question because uh, the data that the data is is quite significant in, in that the bond purchases that we saw uh, peaking last year. In fact, March of 2017, the G4 economies uh, were, were still purchasing about $180 billion per month in U.S. dollar equivalent bond purchases, and we're running at about $50 billion today. So still a, a, a relatively easy global monetary backdrop, but in comparison to just, uh, frankly, a handful of months ago, uh, we, we, we have uh, less stimulus on that side. Uh, with that said, we saw Kuroda last night, and he was mm-hmm. extraordinarily hesitant to indicate to the market that uh, that they were at all concerned uh, and and about ready to take their their foot off the gas pedal. Uh, they're they're not close to the two percent growth level. I think they they know that they've they've learned from their reflationary uh, experiences in the past. That is their inability inability to reflate and grow their economy. And I would suspect that they'll be the last sort of uh, last last uh, entity to pull away the punch bowl. Uh, for the global markets. We're very constructive on Japan here, partially for that reason, but also because they benefit from a lot of these global growth trends that we're we're seeing here. In addition to that, Japan, uh, frankly, has been, uh, you know, quite revolutionary for for Japan uh, in how they are approaching individual investors, activism, board independence. So we're we're quite constructive that uh, Japan's uh, sort of 15% earnings growth in 17 could continue this year. So, Okay. So what, you know, what is the thing that could come undone? Is it just greater inflation at this point? Well, that's certainly uh, a concern that I think the market is is, is weighing. I, I don't think it's something that uh, the, the, the sort of broad uh, a, a likelihood of, of occurrence. I, I, we're not in the camp that inflation is going to rear its ugly head. Certainly, the energy component of CPI is rising, and that's mm-hmm. playing through in, in the form of some of the uh, indicators. But uh, net of food and energy, we, we think inflation will remain at bay. I would argue, Carol, that the biggest concern is that we run out of skilled labor here in the United States and even parts of the uh, global economy. We could be in a scenario where uh, the unemployment rate could ratchet down towards 3.5%. We run out of skilled labor, and uh, we peak ourselves out on the growth front uh, due to that scenario. It's funny that you say that story. There's an um, interesting one on the um, Bloomberg Terminal today, and it just talks about how banks and fintech techs are dueling in a war for talent. They just talk about Europe, in this case. The financial technology startups are you know, on a hiring mode, and they're fighting each other, and everybody else who's out there, a war for talent. Um and we do see that happening. All right, so that we've already seen wages going up, minimum wages going up too, uh, and various companies raising wages. So, 
Is there a tipping point with that where it becomes problematic? And, you know, there's a point where, right, this is good for workers, right? They have more money in their pocket. They can spend more money. Uh, but as long as everybody can keep up and produce out the goods that are demanded by that more money being in everybody's right. pockets, we're okay. It's when that Yeah, it's sort of the escape done. velocity argument. Right. Yeah, and, and, and I think that that's, that was our thought over the last 12 months, that we would probably see more wage pressures uh, capping margin expansion and perhaps even earnings growth. And and uh, we, we don't anticipate this to be the year. We think that uh, businesses may run out of workers um, and need workers to, let's say, open up the next store next door, and mm-hmm. wages do not solve for that problem, and that could cap some growth. So we could see growth accelerate here throughout the year. It may be a 2019 story where, uh, where growth peaks on the heels of, of a lack of labor, which is uh, frankly, sort of an interesting story. Interesting that plays story, out that way. and comes at an interesting time, right? When immigration, the debate over immigration in uh, Congress, almost or it did close down, shut down the, the government, and that is a way of getting a pool of continually, you know, new workers if you need and needed workers, perhaps. Yeah, and and I uh, certainly am not going to weigh in on on the, on the conversation there, but to the extent that we could have an immigration policy that was. Um, identifying pockets of economic uh, labor opportunity and capturing people from other countries to fill those voids. That mm-hmm. would seem to be a, an interesting level of, of conversation reform. Uh, if, if only our elected leaders would, would be able to sit down uh, and have that conversation. So what do your friends and relatives ask you? Do they say, hey, Aaron, what's with this market? Man, should I be all in? <laughs> no, seriously, because, you know, we've talked about FOMO here on Wall Street, the fear of missing out, and that certainly seems to be have that kind of feeling here. Yeah, I think this is a moment where you want to go back to, to basics. You want to make sure that you remain disciplined um, and, and not let emotion get the best of you. Uh, that's what happened during the dot-com crisis where PE multiples expanded, people were elated, and, and, and they got slaughtered. So we're really advising our clients, you know, let's make sure that we understand what your financial goals are. Let's make sure that, yes, maybe this is not a bad time to rebalance if mm-hmm. if, if your asset allocation has gotten away from you over the course of the last uh, year Right. Or, or, or two years, um, but but let's let's not lose the discipline. It's critical to maintain that here. Aaron got to run. Thank you so much. Appreciated, Aaron Kennan there. Thanks for listening to Coast to Coast. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 o'clock Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. And follow us on Twitter. She's at Carol Masser, and I'm at Corey TV.